0: Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. As you guys know, I love true stories. I love the history of certain businesses and There's always something you can learn from. It doesn't matter which industry or which business. They did something right or wrong, and we can take it and apply it to our own business. So uh, the book that we're talking about today is called Slaughterhouse. Now, don't confuse it with Slaughterhouse Five like I did when I first came across it. But uh, it's called Slaughterhouse, Chicago's Union Stockyard and the World It Made. Uh, The author, Dominic Pasiga, is with us today, and it's an honor to have you here, sir.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, let's start off with the genesis of this book, or maybe if you want to give us a quick little background summary of what 1865 looked like in Chicago when it comes to maybe refrigeration of meat, meat meatpacking industry, and the revolution that transpired because of it. Sure.
1: Um, First of all, let me say that the book comes out of some personal experience as well. I worked for the Union Stockyard and Transit Company as a college student. And uh, I was livestock herder, and uh, and then later on a security guard. And my family had worked in the packing houses all the way back to uh, 1913 or so. Wow. So I uh, I had a sort of personal interest in the in this uh, industry. I grew up right next to it. I one of the things that most Chicagoans talk about is the stench uh, from the uh, industry that sort of covered the south side. Um, but in 1865, this was the suburbs. This was not a part of the city of Chicago. It became a part of the city of Chicago in 1889, with the great annexation of 1889. So the stockyards were actually put outside the city limits uh, for one basic reason, uh, so that uh, pollution laws, those kinds of things set up by the city of Chicago would not affect the industry. Um, most of the packing houses were still in the city in Bridgeport along the river, the south branch of the Chicago River. Uh, Until after 1870 or so, when they began to move adjacent to the stockyard. Uh, From its very beginning, it was a huge um, uh, attraction for people. They came out in droves to see it being constructed. This would end up being the largest stockyard in the the world. Uh, Over a billion head of livestock were unloaded at Chicago in its 105-year history. Well over a billion. And um, twice in the 1920s, over 18 million head Uh, of livestock were unloaded in chicago in fact from 1893 to 1933 there were never fewer than 13 million head of livestock and that was hogs cattle sheep and horses it was the largest horse market in the country as well Uh, of course those were not for slaughter that was for you know the selling of work horses and fine horses at dexter park so it, it really was this huge attraction and then after 1900 they had uh the um the uh, uh, international livestock exposition and that drew a half a million people a year what what most of us don't understand from uh, i think uh, our, our sensibilities as uh, as modern people right is that this was such an attraction that such a tourist attraction by the turn of the 19th into the 20th century a half a million people a year visited this packing houses to take tours um, in fact, into the 1950s, kids were taken there on uh, field trips to see the hogs being slaughtered. I have friends who were permanently marked by seeing the hogs have their throats lit, uh, at uh, Armour Company. So uh, this really was an attraction. You know, we were basically a rural nation, right, emerging into an industrial nation. Most people knew how to slaughter a hog or even uh, a steer. Uh, Grandma had you know, made chicken soup by, you know, twisting the neck of a chicken and having chicken soup, um. And so, it it, it took a, a a skilled butcher and his assistant something between eight to ten hours to slaughter a steer and make it ready for market. At Armour and Company, it took thirty four minutes. Wow. Uh, it took about six hours to slaughter a, a, a hog on the farm and make it ready for sale. And Armour and Company took 24 minutes. So this was mass production. That It was the modern. It was sort of a slap in the face. It was an epiphanal experience for people. They came to see this in droves like people used to come to see cars being made. Uh, like people perhaps today would go to, uh, uh, you know, some place where computers are being made, et cetera, the Silicon Valley. Um, Chicago was this huge attraction for people, and it, was, it, it brought people, of course, and, and if you think about the workforce, by World War I, there's almost 50,000 people working in meatpacking in Chicago. If you put the Chicago Union stockyards in the middle of a circle and sent a diameter across you know, a, a, a cross of three miles, one and a half miles on each side, you could actually count more than 35 Roman Catholic churches because of a great massive immigration that took place. Uh, Irish, German, Polish, Lithuanian, Slovak, on and on, because along with many Protestant congregations um, and, uh, and also uh, Jewish synagogues. So this really was Chicago in many ways.
0: Holy think- smokes, that's fascinating, man. I mean, I'm just thinking about what you just explained, where. You would have a factory probably seeing, like you said, a cow or a pig enter 24 minutes later. It's on an assembly line, pretty much like what Henry Ford did with a car. Right. And it's being packaged and being sold, which probably shocked the hell out of people. So I was just in a state where you were explaining. It. I'm like, oh, my God. I never even thought about how that was a new thing then. And it was like, oh, let's go watch it. It's crazy.
1: Yeah. Well, in fact, Henry Ford visited the packing houses, and he often said that he had his idea of the assembly line from the disassembly line at Chicago. So, you know, I mean, you know, it's really interesting. Sarah Bernhardt, you know, one of the great actresses of the 19th, to early 20th century, visited the stockyards and wrote about it in her memoir. Uh, the children of, uh, of Russian princes came to see if they could learn something to build this in, in Russia. Um, Japanese uh, uh, royalty came. Um, every president who ever ran for the United States, uh, <clears throat> up until about Franklin Roosevelt, uh, visited the stockyards. You know, as part of their campaign tour. Um, Mayor Daly, the original Mayor Daly, the first Mayor Daly, excuse me, <clears throat> um, actually posed in his first election on a horse in the stockyards. Uh, he had worked there as a boy himself. Mm. So. Uh, this was, uh, you know, a, a very, um, important part of Chicago life. And then it disappeared.
0: <laughs> You're a great storyteller. Yeah, I was just good. entranced by the way, when you were talking, because, um, whenever I was doing a little bit of research, I didn't know, you know, how much of a, uh, a change up it was and then i realized like you said that it became this natural a- attraction for like you said field trips i didn't know it was up until 1950 but it doesn't even it doesn't even comprehend in today's society that people would want to go see this right so right. um swift and armor i know this these two individuals play a major role in this and i believe one was the butcher and the other one was the meat packing and 1865 the refrigeration and and packing it and allowing meat to travel across the country it was like a new thing at that time so that created what tons of jobs it also centralized the meat packing world and it did wonders for chicago is that right
1: right well you know i mean when the stockyards opened in 1865 it was primarily a uh, a stockyard that shipped livestock east uh most of the livestock was shipped three quarters of the livestock were shipped east about a quarter of them were slaughtered in chicago for local use remember there's no refrigeration in
0: 1865
1: yeah by the 1870s you're getting railroad cars that are refrigerated and that's when uh, uh, they're they're perfected by swift and uh, and armor and they reach out to the east coast now butchers on the east coast very few people say remember the fact that manhattan was a major slaughtering center or was they a know. stockyard in midtown Manhattan, what they call the meatpacking district still today. Now it's nightclubs and bars, et cetera, uh, loft buildings. Uh, but it was a meatpacking center, and um, livestock would be shipped from Chicago to Manhattan and then sold again to local butchers, and meat was slaughtered in, in, in New York City. Um, now, what Swift and Armor did was they began to bring chilled beef into these areas. The railroads refused to carry it, its first, you know, because the railroads made more money on live animals. Live animals are heavier. They charge by the pound. You can only fit about 25 in a rail car. Uh, suddenly, chilled beef, you could put a lot more in a rail car. It was lighter because there's no blood, guts, things like that, right? And, uh, and so it cost uh, uh, less money to ship. So the U.S. railroads said, no, nah, we're not going to carry this, you know. So Swift made a deal with the Canadian National Railroad. That came down through uh, Canada, down into Wisconsin, into Chicago. Uh, and he shipped his, these chilled beefs up through Canada, up, up, up through New, New England, and down into Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. And he was ruthless. Swift and Armour were both ruthless. And the fact is, so let's say a local butcher, and a local butcher said, well, this is embalmed beef. This is no good. This is terrible. This is spoiled. Um, Swift said, well, okay. uh, If you won't sell my meat, I'll open up my own stores and sell them. And if you sell your meat at 10 cents a pound, I'll sell it for 9 cents. And you sell it at 9 cents, I'll sell it for 7 cents. And if you sell it at 7 cents, I'll sell it for a nickel a pound until you're out of business or until you take my beef. And so he soon dominated the East Coast markets. Then they did the same thing on the West Coast markets where you would think all the way on a West Coast. They would uh, set up uh, meatpacking houses, et cetera, and, and ship. So the Union stockyards actually brought in livestock from all over the 48 states, uh, what eventually would be the 48 states that were in 48 states in 1865, but all over the territories of the United States. They brought cattle in. This was part of a revolution that took part after the, con- after the defeat of the Confederacy during the Civil War. Suddenly, Texas cattle you know, you know, could be driven north. And there were railheads that appeared in various places in Oklahoma, Missouri, et cetera. And then they would ship them to Chicago to, these, to this, this stockyard. Now, um, even, even when I was there, and I worked there as a livestock handler in 1969 and then as a guard in 1771. Even when I was there, it was the best fine cattle market in the country. We, had, we would get sometimes as much as 13,000 head of livestock in an evening uh, cattle. Uh, the hog market had already closed by nineteen seventy, but uh, it, so so it it really was sort of the Wall Street of meat, if you can <laughs> take the, understand the metaphor. So it set the price uh, across the country.
0: Wow! And so, real quick, I think Swift and Armour lasted. I mean, I'm, I believe technically the remnants are still around to this day, but they've been sold a few times in two thousand seven specifically. Whether they are broken apart or they still continued to be one company, I'm not sure, but they're still uh, around, right? What they did back then has impacted the meat world still to this day.
1: Sure. And it's been improved upon in many ways, as far as the production of meat. Um, I would say that the closing of the big central markets like Chicago, East St. Louis, Illinois, uh, Kansas city, Omaha, all the big markets, all the big stockyards are closed and gone. That I think has hurt family farmers a lot. And, uh, they were sort of tricked into going away from these markets and selling to the selling direct to the meat packers, mm. with the promise that Chicago the Chicago price would always be there for them, uh, that they would always honor the Chicago price. Once the Chicago stockyards closed because there was no longer enough livestock to maintain it, um, then, uh, then then the the big meat packers had the and now of course meat packers like Smithfield that said run their own super farms where they raise hundreds of thousands of hogs. Uh, Smithfield, like I believe uh, slaughters over hundred thousand hogs a day uh, on in, in in the Carolinas and Virginia and um, uh, you know and they're non-union places so the the, the labor is cheap um, and um, uh, they have uh, put a lot of family businesses family farms out out of work
0: so In the movie, Patch Adams, I remember watching it and was kind of blown away that there was this big party for the meat packers, right? The union that was formed, I mean, they became an extremely powerful union from what I gathered. So uh, you said in this summary, 50,000 workers at one time were working at the highest level or whenever it was the craziest, I think early 1900s, 50,000 people in this one stockyard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so-
1: And and the packing houses and and the adjacent packing houses.
0: And so this is right around, uh, you're talking about, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So we have quite a bit, big history with the steel industry and the unions that were formed there and the battle between the workers and the owners. This is right around the same time. So very dangerous conditions, I believe working extremely wild hours. And therefore a union was formed creating one of the largest unions in the United States at the time, I think. Right.
1: Well, you know, I mean, there were various attempts to to form unions. The first strike in the stockyard was 1869, just uh, four years after it was founded. Uh, And then there were strikes in 1877, 1886, 1894, 1901, 1904. Um, The major push that the final successful push for the stockyard uh, meatpacking unions were at the same time the United Steelworkers were founded in the 1930s were in uh, in the 1930s during the Great Depression. And the New Deal, and uh, that union became very powerful. Uh, but uh, uh, it's within twenty years after founding, most of the big meat packers had already began to leave Chicago, and many of them moved. For instance, Wilson and Company, when it closed its huge plant, they had about five 000, six thousand people working for it. It closed it like overnight, and uh, they opened a plant in Oklahoma, which was a, a non union state. You know. Uh, with, with, anti-union laws uh so uh the many of these meat packers actually fled the big cities and fled those places where, where the unions were strong um today however you know chicago is still a. They, there's only one slaughterhouse left in chicago it's a small pet uh small operation still in the union stock market, uh park packing um but there are many uh, what they call uh, meat purveyors. That is that they they buy their slaughtered animals. They bring them into Chicago and then they cut them up and sell them as, you know, pork chops or whatever, you know, lamb chops. Uh, there are still quite a few of those in the Chicago area. When I was writing the book, I think there were still 100 in the area, but not in the union stockyard itself.
0: Hmm. And so the rise was based off of basically ingenuity of a couple entrepreneurs. Combined with the aspect of new technology, once again, you know, trains and frozen cars and whatnot, and then obviously like the conveyor belts and um, being able to automate some of that, Uh, what was the uh, cause of the fall then? Was it just because of competition and maybe nowadays, not many people were, maybe the vegan push. So what caused it to start to decline?
1: Well, uh, what happened... For the stock now, so let me make a make perfectly clear that the union stockyard was the marketplace. This is where animals were sold. Adjacent to it were the meat packing That's where animals were slaughtered and and uh, and, and you know packaged. Uh and, and not only animals, they made soap, they made all kinds of things. Oh. Um but when those big meat packers began to leave, they began to leave for a very specific reason. One is the introduction of the, of the truck rather than the railroad. So railroads tend to center industry because they're permanent structures. You yeah. can't pick railroad lines and move them every two days. But with the uh, development of the interstate highway system, with the development of, of trucks uh, uh, that could go to a farm and pick up animals and take them straight to the paint packing houses and so forth, that began to um, disintegrate this this old uh, process and began to uh how can i put it put it in other places all over the country so you get more slaughtering near farms in iowa southern illinois wisconsin all over the place instead of having it brought together sort of uh, in in one center like chicago or kansas city or omaha so that was important uh the other thing important was the idea of of direct buying so if you were a meat packer, what you do is you go to a small farmer and say look farmer Armour Jones. You've got a hundred head of cattle here. You want to send them to Chicago, you can. But remember, at Chicago, you pay a commission. You have to pay to transport them there. Uh, you often go with your animals, you know, drive along with your animals because you want to make sure you get the right price because you don't trust anybody, right? So here I am, armor and company. I'm going to send a truck to get your animals, pick them up. There's no transportation cost for you. There's no commission to be paid. You get exactly what you would have gotten at Chicago. Make more money, get less work. How about that? Isn't that a great deal? Of course. Then once the livestock market closes, then they're at the command of of the, of the meat packers. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting, you know. And uh, uh, I think uh, the loss of those markets, like I said, killed off a lot of small family farms. And to an extent, I mean, and remember the Drovers Journal, which was perhaps the most influential uh, industry newspaper. It came out every day in Chicago. Warned farmers about this. They said, you know, you're cutting your own throats by selling direct to the meat packers, but, you know, it's up to you. And uh, then eventually the stockyard closed. So it was a real quick decline after World War II. World War II was so, so F, up to 1933, there had never been fewer than 13 million head of livestock unloaded at the Chicago Union stockyard. After that, it never reached it again. It did hit 10 million during World War II. But then, after World War II, it declined very quickly. Remember, once again, you've got the truck, you've got direct buying, you've got changes in the way marketing is done in in in, in rural areas. Uh, you've got the telephone. Uh, telephone's a big thing. You know, people pick up the phone and say, "Well, this is what we'll give you for your livestock. What do you think? You're going to ship to Chicago, or you're going to let me send a truck down to pick you up?" You know, and now computers, right? <laughs> so uh, here we are talking. In you know, a media that uh, when I was a boy we couldn't even imagine except for like Buck Rogers or something. Uh, but here we are talking together, and this is the same with farmers. They use uh, you know, computers just like everybody else. <clears throat> so you've seen this tremendous technological change that created the union stock market, and then technological change that brought its decline.
0: Jeez. Yeah, it completely changed the the food system and 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 like you said, it introduced <laughs> people uh, to certain types of meat possibly for the very first time in their lives. So individuals were able to carry people or carry animals to, uh, to Chicago. And then Chicago pretty much puts it everywhere in the country. If there's a train system nearby, then trucks come into play. Uh, and then, like you said, the, it starts to decline right around, you said after the forties, uh, your family has been loyal to this company. So, what was it like seeing it pretty much diminish? Was it just devastating to the city of I, Chicago and then even some families like yours?
1: Yeah, well, my family had been in meatpacking uh, until the 1940s and after World War II, the boys came back, my father uh, came back and my uncles came back and they didn't wanna work sticking pigs anymore. So, well, uh, they went to what they called clean industries. You know, they went to work at places like Western Electric, which are now gone uh, also. Um, and other kinds of industries. And so, but they stayed in the neighborhood. Uh, the neighborhood still maintained their sort of uh, white working class presence uh, for the longest time uh, with the growth of the mixed Mexican community and uh, the growth of the African American community. So by 1958, uh, 80% of the meatpacking workers in Chicago were, were people of color. Well, the whites had basically left the industry for wow. uh, top management jobs, things like that. Um the, you know, they they moved down to what they called, like I say, cleaner industries. Um, you know, there was a um also a sort of feeling that uh the in, uh, th- this was not a, this, these were not prestigious jobs, right? I and mean, you're standing in blood up to your ankles all day and pushing meat around. Uh when I went to work there as a as a student at you know, as a student at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I went to work there at nights first as a livestock handler. I didn't even know the stockyards were still there. I was uh, roaming around. Uh, I had I had worked actually in a steel mill, and I didn't like the job. It was, uh, you know, not, not a very good job, and though it paid well, and I quit. It was a summer job, and I walked through the old packing house district, and it looked like London bombed out after the war. These oldies, these huge industrial buildings just abandoned, you know, holes in the walls, and things like that. And I was walking across the stockyards uh, with the idea that I'd get to the bus on Halsted Street and then go up to the university and take a look at what they had for jobs. And I came across the livestock market. There it was. And I said, wow, <laughs> how is this? You know? And I went in and I got a job that night. I was working in the hog house. Um, for me, it was a, a, a really interesting place to work. But I worked outside. I worked with the animals, you know, uh, Rather than slaughtering, I hadn't seen I hadn't seen a slaughter until I wrote this book. Uh, I had a friend whose family owned a meatpacking house, one of the few slaughterhouses left in Chicago at the time. It's now closed. Uh, Franco uh, Cipetti, and Franco said, "Sure, you want to see a slaughter? My uncle'll take you through." So I I went to see the slaughter, and I was a uh, I was uh, reluctant at first, you know.
0: Yeah, um, I can understand uh, why I don't want to see it. Yeah, I and love then, meat. So- I absolutely love, I love chicken. I love burgers. Sure. I'm afraid if I watch one of these, mm-hmm. I will not want to eat it anymore. So I've heard of individuals going through that. So you probably felt the same way, huh?
1: Yeah, I did. And, and you know, and, and here I had worked in the industry outside. Once again, we didn't slaughter. We sold the animals. Um, but I went to see the slaughter. I thought I had to do that if I was going to write this book. <laughs> and um, it was a sheep slaughterhouse. And it worked, it it was so fast, Matt, so fast, uh, and so laid out that you realize it was just a job. I saw it from the throat being slid all the way to get into the cooler. Uh, and it was just, just, the line went so quickly and people worked so fast. And most of the people in this slaughterhouse were from Michoacan in Mexico. The industry always had attracted immigrants, whether those immigrants were from Ireland or Poland or Germany or Mexico, you know. Or are from the, the rural South, African Americans, and it always attracted those kinds of people. The latest wave were people from Mexico, from Michigan, and they were all working there. And they, you know, it, it was going very fast. Unfortunately, that plant is now gone. Those 220 jobs or whatever it was there are now gone as well. Um, in a neighborhood that's uh, seeing some gentrification, nobody really wants a meatpacking plant next to their 40, 100, 100 300 thousand dollar townhouse. You know. So uh, a lot of these industries have have closed up and moved out, um, but to see it, uh, one began to realize how how quickly um, it, it happened, and so and everybody had one little job to do. You know, one person went to pull this apart, one person pulled that out, one person cut this, and so it just went really quickly by. Uh, and then they gave me a box full of lamb chops, and I went home, and uh, and I'm coming in the house. Of course, I had been standing in blood. Right, my dog went crazy. <laughs> <It> was like, <laughs> "I had brought the dog home something really important." <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, yeah, so it, it 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 was interesting to see, and it, it it put my gave me a perspective on the book that I, I hadn't had before.
0: So, was it number one messy, number two scary, and number three did it change your perspective on eating meat? Um, I'll start with eating meat. No, it has not changed my perspective on eating meat. Yeah. In fact,
1: that, that box of lamb chops were excellent. That they yeah.
0: gave. I believe God put animals on the planet for that reason. So whenever people say you shouldn't eat it because of new technology, I'm like, you just don't do that. It, it, these animals, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I just look at deer. I see hunting. I could never kill the deer, but I see the benefit. I mean, I, I could probably do it if I need to, especially if I'm in survival mode. But I see it. I'm like, it's a necessity. You have to kill. Otherwise, it would be so much overpopulation. There'd be getting hit by cars. It'd be a mess everywhere. So I think it's essential. And that's the way I look at it. So,
1: Well, it's interesting. It, it, it did not affect me. I, I'll tell you, I didn't eat pork for a while after working in the hog house. Uh, that was a little much for me. Uh, but I do now. Um, so uh, now, was it scary? Um, I thought it would be. Uh, but no, it wasn't. It was very clean. It went very quickly. You know, there were meat inspectors all over the place. Um, but you know, there was blood on the floor, you know, I mean, because you're slaughtering animals uh, and they're going down into drains. Um, and that blood is, you know, blood is used for all kinds of things, for fertilizer, et cetera, for medicines, et cetera. Wow. Um, actually, at the Union Stockyards, used to be able to go across the street on Halstead. So, uh, the stockyards were uh, west of Halstead, so you could go out on Halstead and buy buttons made out of blood from animals slaughtered in the stockyards. So you could actually buy little buttons to put on your shirt uh, uh, made out of blood from the steers or, or the hogs at one point. They used everything, everything but the squeal. And, and Armour said if I, if he could package the squeal and somebody would buy it, he'd do that too. It's that is crazy. So it, was, it, was, it was the, it was the uh, epitome of American capitalism, is use everything. Oh, you know, my God. Out of, out of all, all of it. Really interesting. And, and there are parallels to the steel industry. You know, Chicago became a major steel producing center as well in the chicago Gary area. And uh, the unions rose at the same time there. And they were connected with each other even during World War I when there were drives. So these two industries really made places like Chicago, uh, uh, important industrial centers.
0: Well, uh, when it comes to the regulations that came from it, I mean, it's unbelievable. From what I'm reading, it seems like um, the passage of the Meat Inspection Act of 1906 and the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. So like a lot of regulations were put in place. And so I would think even the FDA is involved or I don't know how this is all done, but it seems like this was a a, a crucial piece to all the regulations that are involved with just meat in general to to this day because of. How much food was going through there and uh, maybe people getting sick and, and almost <laughs> I'm assuming there was a, there was a lot of craziness early on before they had the regulations, which caused all that. So anything you can share with us?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, actually, you know, there was not much regulation um, uh, ex- uh, before 1906. Teddy Roosevelt, you know, he was with Rough Riders during the Spanish-American War. He always believed that many of the deaths caused during the Spanish-American War were by rancid meat that was shipped out of Chicago. So he was looking for a way to uh, to deal with this industry, uh, this progressive movement. It's the sort of beginning of a period of regulation, you know, of not only meat, but uh, pure food and drugs, and other kinds of acts. Um, and Upton Sinclair wrote the book, The Jungle, which was, uh, in my view, largely an exaggeration based on the, the myths and the stories of 50, 60 years of the Stock acts, you know. Um, but it had uh, a real impact on the public, and it had an impact on Roosevelt. He now had a tool that he could use to push rules to Congress to regulate Got this it. industry. So uh, this was this was really an important. And when when Sutton Sinclair's book comes out, 1906, um, you begin to see Congress sort of shifting away from the idea of no regulation to regulation. Uh, and uh, the meatpacking industry had been Um, investigated many times in the 1880s, 1890s, and early 1900s by the federal government, especially over the use of the the idea of monopoly or oligopoly, where several companies come together to control a marketplace. And they were definitely guilty of this. Armour, Swift, Nelson Morris, S&S, meatpacking. Uh, They were definitely guilty of of manipulating the market. Um, Remember, these guys were out to make a profit. They were yeah. Out to be ruthless. Out they out sound ruthless good citizens. They were out to make a profit and they made a zillion bucks. I mean, they really made I, a tremendous amount of money um, uh, on this. And, you know, some of them were rather strange characters. These early guys, I mean, Swift, Swift, you know, had been a butcher uh, back in Massachusetts and he became a, a livestock uh, purchaser. You know, he would uh, go out and buy livestock. And he, he moved to Chicago and then opened his own plant. Uh, and he lived right next to the stockyard. His wife finally had to make him move, finally forced him to move because she couldn't take the smell. And so he moved to an upper class neighborhood along the lakefront uh, to the Hyde Park Kenwood area. Uh, Nelson Morris was this little immigrant, uh, I mean, small man uh, who had grown up in the meatpacking business uh, in, in Germany. He was a, a German Jew. Um, his, his name, I forget what his name was originally, but he, was, he worked for a meatpacker named Nelson, and so they called him Nelson's Morris. And so he just changed his name to Nelson Morris at, 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 at later on and uh, opened up one of the biggest meatpacking co- companies in the world. And by the way, there was a fire at, um, in, in the stockyards um, and at Nelson Morris plant, which killed more firemen than any place else in the country until 911 21 firemen died in the meatpacking house just collapsed on them uh, in 19 gosh losing it now me i think about 1915 or so uh, and it fell on these firemen they died and uh, and that was the largest loss of first responders until 911 uh wow stockyard, stockyard and there were fires in the stockyards all the time i mean all the time In 1934, a fire broke out in the Chicago Stockyards that uh, basically took out the entire uh, uh, cattle division uh, and and parts of the sheep division and burned down buildings. In fact, the the fire was so intense that it jumped Halstead Street and started burning the neighborhood down just to the east of Stockyards. Um, And that fire was finally put out. There's actually a kind of funny story about this. Across on Halsted Street were a series of taverns, you know, that would serve the workers as they came out and the and, and the livestock men who came out and and many of the farmers. Uh, and um, there was one tavern there on about 40th and Halsted. The fire was raging. Uh, and the tavern just opened its doors and gave free beer out to the firemen. Uh, and by God, that that tavern did not burn down. <laughs> <Firemen>. <laughs> They protected that. Oh, they, wow. They protected that care. That, that yeah. So, uh, you know, there's kind of interesting stories about, well fires are weird things, you know, anyway. Uh, they burn weird ways. But uh, that fire wiped out the, the cattle division, uh, much of the sheep division. It did not burn down the packing houses. And the next day, that was a, about the next day, for the livestock market, the stockyard put up temporary pens and unloaded, Cattle and hogs and sheep.
0: No pause. Just kept going.
1: Just kept going. It never closed. We were open every day uh, until August first, nineteen seventy-one, which was the first non-market day, and from eighteen sixty-five on. So you know, no matter what happened, it was always open. And you know, another interesting historical connection is the people who organized the Union Stockyard and Transit Company, the livestock market. We're all friends of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, And in fact, there was a huge bust of Abraham Lincoln in front of the exchange building until the day it it was knocked down. Um, So they had all been friends of Lincoln. And of course, it was called the Union Stockyard, which had double meaning in 1865, right? Yeah. It had just been fought for the Union. But it was supposedly the uniting of about six small stockyards in Chicago uh, into one. Uh, So it had a sort of a double meaning for people in 1865. So there's all kinds of little interesting historical connections here.
0: Last question I have for you is what can we learn from this? I mean, it seems like there was a there was a couple of ruthless entrepreneurs who made very wise decisions. They took advantage of opportunity. They created demand, right, by being really smart and maybe even creating that monopoly. But uh, I don't know. Is there anything else we can take from it?
1: Well, I, I think what we have to think about is how technology changes the way we live our lives every day. Americans didn't eat meat all the time, I mean, we, were one of, we are today one of the biggest meat-eaters countries in the world. You know, and that actually comes out of an Anglo-Saxon tradition. You know, uh, but uh, uh, way technology changed made meat more affordable, cheaper, and today we still have cheap meat. You know, uh, you know, we talk about chicken. Chicken uh, was expensive in the 1920s; it was rarely eaten. Places like Tyson came along mass produced it, suddenly the price of chicken came down. Now chicken is a, is a cheap meat, right? Yeah. Um, comparatively. Uh, so technology, what we have to be aware of is how technology changes, not only the way uh, we eat or, or we work, but the way we live, it, you know? And, and like I say, here we are talking in this, what when I was a kid would have been sort of a Buck Rogers uh, method of, of you know seeing each other.
0: The dream, um, yeah. Jetson, uh, Jetson-like.
1: It, yeah, now it's 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 an everyday occurrence. You know, I do several zooms a um, a week, um, and so technology has changed the way we, we. I mean, lately, right? The stay-at-home right worker who doesn't go downtown anymore to work in an office—he works three at least three days at home, or she works at least three days at home. That has changed. It's had a tremendous impact on the on the downtowns in Chicago, uh, New York, and and across the country. Now you've got empty office buildings because you don't need offices because everybody's on Zoom. Uh, So technology really changes the way we interact with each other.
0: Yeah. You can run from it. You can run from it, but it's going to get you. There's no doubt about it.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that anybody who's trying to run from AI is fooling themselves. So this technology that is in our existence right now, But it's going to get crazier and crazier. So learn to adopt it. Use it to your advantage. Don't be used by it is probably the best way to put it. So, Right,
1: Right. yeah.
0: Guys, the book, I mean, I just love these type of stories because I don't talk about this uh, with everybody. Slaughterhouse, Chicago's Union Stockyard and the World It Made. Dominic Pasiga. it is an honor to talk with you. You're a great storyteller. I'm sure you've heard that before.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate it.
0: And, uh, is there a way for people to get in touch with you? Is it, uh, just through LinkedIn or is there any website do you recommend? Um, I, um, you can,
1: you can, uh, uh email me, I suppose, uh, uh, lowercase d p a c y g a at ameritech.net. Um, my books are available from the university of Chicago press, uh, and of course to Amazon and the usual booksellers. Um, and, um, Yeah. Um, I have, a my webpage at the university of Chicago press is probably the easiest way to go.
0: Cool. Dominic Basiga guys, check out the book. If you love true stories like me, you would absolutely love it. So, uh, Dominic, thank you again. And remember guys, a million dollar book will lead to a million dollar life right on.